Amen. And you may be seated. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. This morning's message will be from verses 1 through 7 with a heavy emphasis on 1 through 4. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. As you turn there, Josh read this just a moment ago. As you turn there, I want to be real transparent with you this morning. There are two great fears that lurk beneath the surface of pastors in their hearts. There's two great fears that keep pastors up at night and tempt pastors into moments of anxiety. And that is this. The first one is that a congregation that that pastor leads is apathetic towards the gospel. Complacent in the ways of the faith. And the second is even more extreme than that. It concerns pastors that their congregations not be divisive, disunified, not living in harmony. I I want you to know that Jesus Christ uh, did not come apathetically to this earth to die for his church. And Jesus Christ did not have a divisive moment ever in his relationship with the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I I want you to imagine for a moment if Jesus Christ was apathetic towards God the Father. We wouldn't have been able to sing anything we just sang. I want you to imagine if Jesus Christ was apathetic towards you and me. Those songs wouldn't have ever been written. I want you to imagine if Jesus Christ was divisive in his relationship with the Father and the Spirit. So I'm saying to you this morning that why pastors are so concerned about a congregation being apathetic and divisive is that those are anti-gospel positions for a church to live in. They are the exact opposite of how Jesus Christ has conducted himself for all of eternity. I have good news this morning. I'm not preaching this sermon as a rant against our congregation. I don't look at us as a divided congregation. I think we are united in many fronts, but we could be better. I don't think that we're apathetic as a whole, but I do think that there are pockets in our church and corners and ministries and and areas that we need to get more intentional and more ambitious, but we are not a dead, apathetic, divided church. This is not a rant against such. But this is, as Paul did with the Philippian church, an encouragement and an exhortation to say, let's go further away from apathy and let's go further away from division. It's a very important calling for every church on God's earth. Why are we so concerned about these two issues? I want you to hear Hebrews 13, 17. Paul, or we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Some people think Paul, but Hebrews 13, 17 says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Do you view the pastors, the six of us, in this light? Authentic pastors keep a watch over the souls of their congregation. Do you see the six of us doing that? Professional pastors don't. 
professional pastors are in the ministry either for the money or the platform that they can use to spread their own glory and manipulate people to do what they wish. But authentic pastors shepherd souls. They keep watch over the souls of those that are members of the congregations that Christ has called them to lead. Shepherds like this, and really all shepherds, will, according to this verse, have to give an account. And so I'm telling you this morning that apathy and divisiveness keep guys like me up at night because I'm going to have to give an account for how I've shepherded this body of people with five other men one day. So in the last week from Last Sunday to this Sunday, these two issues are at the heart of what Paul has written the Philippian church. Last Sunday, we addressed the first issue of apathy. If you recall, I had four points last week. Number one, we were to be resolved as a congregation and stand firm in the face of opposition. Number two, we were to be ambitious as a congregation, striving side by side to advance the gospel. Number three, we were to have courage as a congregation. We were not to be frightened by our opponents. That's all found in verse 27 and 28. And wrapped around all of that was this appeal that Paul made to be unified. He says, in one spirit with one mind striving side by side. So there is a call to be unified right there. And all of those are against the concept of apathy in a congregation. Stand firm, strive, don't be frightened by your opponents, and do this all in one mind and one spirit. It's a word against apathy. This morning, in verses two and follow, verse 1 and following of chapter 2, Paul builds out further this idea of unity. And so look with me in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being, here we go, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It's a call to be unified. We need to be careful here that we don't miss the applications of this text to Rocky Point Baptist Church. God's given us this word so that we as a church can imitate that that God calls us to be. If we look at this, we see that Paul gives us here three things in the text this morning. An urgent call for humility, and it is urgent. He says his joy will be completed if it is found in the congregation of Philippi. Second, he gives us the idea of intentional acts of humility that we ought to be about as a congregation. And then number third, oh boy, he gives us a perfect example of the humility that he's urgently calling us to be intentional about. That's where we're going this morning. So look at first the verses 1 and 2 and this urgent call that Paul gives the Philippians and therefore us. For humility and unity. Paul grounds his calling for this with two motives that are found in two persons of the Trinity. Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. There's, there's, two, there's four statements. Two go together and here's how it works. Number one, we see that he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love. A, a better way to translate that really and truly is, 
since there is encouragement in Christ and since there is comfort from his love. I want you to recall back in verse 29, look right above there. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It was granted to us to believe and to suffer. Now, in verse 1, we are encouraged and comforted by this same Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.5 says this, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So, if we believe in Jesus Christ as a congregation, if we suffer together with Him for the sake of His name, we also bask in his encouragement and his comfort that's found in his love. And if that's true, we need to do that with one another. Believe together in Christ, suffer together for the name of Christ, and then together we are to be comforted by Christ, whom we've believed in and suffered for. That's a community project. It's not to be lived out in isolation in your own little dark corner of the world, in your own little secret life. We are to do this as a congregation. It is a community, community project. The second one is grounded in the Holy Spirit. Keep reading. Since there is participation in the Spirit and any affection and sympathy. As Christians, yes, we have fellowship with Jesus Christ through belief and suffering and comfort, but we also have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. This participation that Paul talks about is fellowship with him. We do this together. The Spirit has, as he says here, affection and sympathy for the church. The Spirit has affection. Affection is an inward, heartfelt feeling towards another. Sympathy is mercy and compassion and even pity towards someone and the Holy Spirit in the Bible has these attributes towards us Romans chapter 8 verse 26 likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what we to what we ought to pray for but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words that word groanings is affection and sympathy that are so deep that words cannot even be put to it. This is how the, the Holy Spirit relates to us. This is how we participate with the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. We have God, the Holy Spirit, interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. And Paul says if we have that with the Holy Spirit, we must have that with one another. We must look upon one another's lives and statuses and circumstances. And we must have affection and sympathy. We must groan for one another when we're groaning. And we must laugh with one another when we're laughing. For this is how we relate to the Holy Spirit. And so a true church that is healthy and united is a church that is grounded in Christ and grounded in the Holy Spirit and lives with one another as we live as individuals with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. So, Paul says, since these are true of them, he does not say, 
you know, if you want to be like these, he says, since if there is any of this in you, and he knows that there is, he says, I want you to take some action with these truths. I need you to do something with this fellowship with the spirit and this comfort that you have in Christ. And I need you to do it amongst yourselves. And so he goes on and he says, here's what I want you to do with this. I want you to complete my joy. Paul is such a father figure. He calls himself Timothy's spiritual father. And I want you to know he is, he is even a spiritual father to us as God inspired him to write these words. A true father wants to be joyous and joyful in his children and the church in Philippi was planted by Paul. If we recall Lydia's conversion and the Philippian jailer's conversion and a church was born. Paul looks at this Philippian church as his spiritual children. That's right to say he looks as Timothy as his spiritual son. And so like a father, he says to his church in Philippi, complete my joy. Complete my joy. By living out your relationship with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in an authentic way. And he says this, Philippians 1, starting in verse 3, just turn back over there. He introduces us to his joy right there. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. And he goes on to say, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So there his prayer is made with joy. Now in chapter 2, he's saying, yes, I pray to God with joy for you, but I need you to make my joy complete. And he's going to tell us how to do that. It's not just a concept out there. There's a manner in which we are to take the action of making Paul's joy complete and it continues right there he says here's how you do it you make my joy complete by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind these are the means or the the manners in which we can take the action of completing paul's joy being of the same mind having same love being in full accord and again, of one mind, it's emphatic over and over again. He says, you will complete my joy, church, by being united. By being united. 127. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. If we live that way, not apathetically, and this way united, Paul says his joy will be complete. And I think that's what God says to us because he inspired Paul to write this. It's a beautiful sight to see a church live like Paul is exhorting us to live. And it is such an ugly, ugly sight 
to see a church that's apathetic and divided. It's ugly. So now we move to the second point. Hold those thoughts. Let's move to this second point. Paul there gave us an urgent call for unity. Now he gives us the intentional acts of humility that we are to be about. He gets pretty specific here. And he warns us of how we ought to act and not act so that we can complete his joy and fulfill our calling as a church of Jesus Christ. Paul states these acts uh, negatively and positively. There's two negative ones and there's two positive ones. Let's look at them. Here's the first one, verse 3. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. He expresses the act negatively. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition, vain conceit. Let's just acknowledge here this morning together as a church family. These are at the core of human fallenness. It's very natural for us to be selfishly ambitious. We don't even have to think and we're there. It is very natural for us to have empty conceit and to swim there in those waters and to live in those waters and to breathe that kind of oxygen in and out. Selfish ambition, what is it? It is rivalry. It is egotism. It is putting oneself in the center of the world or in the center of the church or in the center of the family. It's a me first attitude. What's in it for me? That is selfish ambition. And Paul says, do nothing out of that. Nothing. Empty conceit. What do we, how do we define that? Empty conceit is empty glory that only the self-blessed person can bestow upon themselves. (laughs) It's a bunch of selves in that. Empty conceit, vain glory, is glory that we lavish upon ourselves only. It doesn't come from others. It doesn't come from God. In our selfishly ambitious moments, we build ourselves up and we bask in our own glory. And it is vain and it is empty. And Paul says, don't live in it. This selfish ambition and this empty conceit that we are prone towards, it is a giant in our lives, and it is a giant that we must kill. We must kill this giant. Root it out of our hearts and cast it far away, or it will tear our church asunder. It's a timely message. Hear me again, church. We don't live here. But it's a timely message that we don't even start glancing in that direction. Praise God we're not apathetic. Praise the Lord that we are not divided. But let's take these words to heart to make sure we never even glance in that direction as a congregation. For it will be impossible for us to fulfill our mission if we don't. You know, we live in a world, in a culture that swims in this sin of selfish ambition. Just, just take a look outside of us and look at the world that we live in. You can only divide the political or you can only define the political environment that we live in as one of selfish ambition. 
I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. Weeks ago, there was a gigantic argument about how many people were at an inauguration. It was all about selfish ambition and vain glory. I had more than he had. No, you didn't. We had more than you had. It's nothing but selfish ambition. The political environment that we live in is nothing but that. You go to corporate America, and selfish ambition rules the day. And it will cause people to make false accusations about one another so that they can step over one another and climb the ladder. How about the arena of sports? Now, let's be careful here. It is right to be selfishly ambitious in a basketball game to try to beat your opponent and score points. That is not sin. Okay? That's competition. But when you watch our athletes off the court away from the field, in the public light, most of the time you're seeing people spew selfish ambition and empty conceit. When we watch our news channels, I don't care if it's a conservative or a liberal news commentator, man, it's nothing but selfish ambition and vain conceit. Nothing. Fair and balanced doesn't really mean fair and balanced. It's all selfishly motivated. I I give you these examples just to say to you this morning. We live in a world, the oxygen that we breathe is saturated with selfish ambition. And we cannot let it come into our families, our natural biological families. We cannot let this rule how we live together at home. And we absolutely, according to Paul's word here, cannot let this come into our church family life either. Selfish ambition and vain conceit have to be stopped at the door. Stopped at the property line out here. Stopped at the cutoff of 205 heading this way. Let's stop it down there four miles away from us. Do not let selfish ambition creep in to our congregation. Well, let's look at the next one. The next one he states in the positive. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's tough as well. (laughs) That's very difficult. This is tremendously difficult. I want to ask you a question this morning. How in the world can we do this? How can we, based on this passage, count others more significant than ourselves? Well, we need to look at one another and treat one another in light of firsthand evidence that we have of one another. I think this is helpful. I think if we consider the hearts of one another, we're going to treat people correctly. And here's how it goes. You don't know my heart and I don't know your heart. Only God knows every one of our hearts in this room. And when we treat one another with selfish ambition, we are not considering our hearts versus their hearts. For you see, there is one heart that I do know quite well. It's mine. And even then, I know I don't know my heart fully because I am that fallen and I need that much redemption from Jesus Christ. I have blind spots in my heart and in my mind, but I am quite aware of many flaws within me. 
that Jesus Christ has redeemed on the cross. I am aware of many tendencies that if I don't guard myself, I could go off into sinful ways. And so I know me quite well. And if I concentrate on me and my fallenness, because I know exactly I can quantify where I am weak and susceptible and fallen, I'm going to consider you more important than me. I'm going to consider you superior to me. I'm going to consider you more significant than me. Because I know me and you're somewhat of a mystery to me. And so the calling here is for us to rightly, in a humble way, consider others in relation to ourselves. And I know how fallen I am. And I don't know how fallen you are. Only God does. And so I am going to consider you more significant and your needs above those of mine. Paul, the very writer of this passage, tells us how to do this and lived this out. He is why I have said what I just said. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.15 Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Right there is where we need to be living. I am the chief of sinners as I stand in this pulpit and preach to you. And I know how I have sinned. And you can look at me with genuineness and say, right back at you, Edward. And if we live there, we're considering others above ourselves. It's when we say, I am righteous and I am holy and I am better than others, that we will not consider one another more significant than ourselves. And so I'm calling you this morning to do what Paul does and to realize that you and I, we are the chief of sinners and the other is more important and more superior to us as it relates to this. And so we need to go to great lengths to pave the way for one another to live a life of righteousness for Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, 15, 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You hear it. I am the chief of sinners. I am the least of the apostles, because I am the greatest of sinners. Don't you love that God had that man write these words to us? And as Paul says over in 3.17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. We are to imitate him and we are to say, I am the chief of sinners and I'm going to put your interests ahead of mine. When we begin to think critical things about one another, we must stop right there and evaluate ourselves. And then we will not go down the trail that says they're inferior. I'm superior. Then we will likely find that we don't have time to criticize one another. If we look at our own fallenness, we will be so consumed with that that we can't be critical of one another. This is what Paul says we should do to live with the same mind and the one mind and the same spirit. The key is humility. That's what he says. In humility, count others more significant 
in yourselves. Let's go back to the world that we live in. The world's perspective on the word humility, the world hates that word. It's a word of weakness to the culture. Humility is despised by the world. But I want you to know that in reality, if you pulled the curtain back and looked at the spiritual aspects of humility, you're going to understand that humility is the most magnificent demonstration of strength that exists. It is one of the greatest strengths that a person can exercise. And when it's exercised within the context of a church, it grows up a healthy, unified congregation. It takes strength to deny what lurks within us, selfish ambition and vain conceit. It is easy for us to let those things flourish, but it takes strength. It takes effort. And it takes strong desire to kill selfish ambition. And so while the world mocks it as weakness, in the kingdom of Christ, it is the greatest demonstration of strength that you can find in the Scriptures. We'll come back to that in just one moment. Let's look at the last one. There's two more acts of humility that Paul calls us to. I'm going to do them together. There's a negative and a positive. It's in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. So negatively, not only to the, your own interests, but positively also the interests of others. Now, let's be careful here. I'm going to work through this one quicker. Paul says, not only when he says, look out for your own interests. He does not say, neglect your interests. This is not a call to be ascetics, where we deny ourselves in wrong ways to where we can't flourish in our relationship with the Lord. We are to look out for our own interests. We are to walk in such a way that we live this word out. We are to make certain that we do do things that reflect our profession of faith in Jesus Christ and don't do things that don't reflect him. But we're supposed to do that while also considering one another. So we don't neglect ourselves, but we don't neglect one another. We take care of both. That's Christian unity. So while you're busy attending to the matters that are important to you and that are your called responsibility by God, you also need to be equally concerned with the same matters in the lives of those within your church family. You're to have two perspectives that you live out and you're to fulfill both of those perspectives ambitiously and godly. So we we see simple things where we can do this. We have retreats coming up. These retreats cost money. Some of us, let's just be very honest, cannot afford that comfortably within our budget. And some of us can afford that times two or three. And so real practically, some of us say, I need to go to that retreat and I'm going to go and I'm going to fund it. And along the way they say, but some can't. And I'm going to put their interest ahead of my own. And I'm going to double my payment so a brother can go to a men's retreat or a sister can go to a ladies retreat. That's a real simple application of what we're talking about here. We've been talking together as a congregation this morning about our needs to staff a nursery. And have a good balanced coverage Sunday after Sunday during the 10-15 hour. 
There's some that have given over and over again. There's some that have not been able to get out of the nursery from one Sunday to the next. They would love to gather with us regularly and take the Lord's Supper with us in the room, but they haven't been able to because there hasn't been adequate staffing. Well, we've talked to two Sunday school classes this morning. We'll come to you if we didn't next week. And we're saying, can we, from within ourselves, staff this nursery so that there's a nice rotation so everyone sows the gospel into the hearts of our babies and also gathers regularly with the congregation? And maybe there's a a fifth or sixth week, every fifth or sixth Sunday, someone would serve in the nursery. This is how we practically look out for our own interests. We need to worship, but also look out for the interests of others. Others need to worship as well. Some of you need to be evangelists in our nursery. It's a great mission field. The gospel is needed in the nursery with newborns through four-year-olds. They need to hear the gospel. You have an opportunity to be evangelists in our church once every fifth or sixth Sunday. But also you need to be in here partaking of the Lord's Supper, praying together as a congregation. So now we see practically in the life of our church some areas where we can... Not only look out for our own interests, but also look out for the interests of others. Real simple, real basic application. But that's what we're going for here as a church. We've got to live in such unity. Let's look at the third point. And I'm going to have to restrain myself this morning. Because now we go into verse 5. And next Sunday, we will preach verses 5 through 11. And I'm not going to do it today. I am chomping at the bit to do it. But we are going to dip just a little bit into these verses. We're going to go through verse 8, very surface. And I'll come back and get deep with them next week. Here Paul gives us the example, the perfect example of humility that we are to emulate. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours In Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he's given us an urgent plea. Need you to be unified. This will complete my joy. He gives us the means or the methods or the actions that we are to take to be unified. Not selfishly ambitious. Not vainly conceited. Putting the interest of others ahead of our own. And now he says, let me give you an example. (laughs) Let me show you what I'm talking about. And he takes us to none other than Jesus Christ. He doesn't take us to himself. He takes uh, takes us to our Christ. Paul gives us the ultimate standard here in these verses. Jesus did not live out anything that was in defined as selfishly ambitious. Can we agree on that? Not an ounce of this selfish ambition can be found in Jesus Christ. No empty conceit. He didn't proclaim his own glory. He allowed the glory of his name to be proclaimed by his father because of his actions. He was ambitious For God the Father and the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ was ambitious for your glory. That you might be glorified through His works. 
in humility. He considered others more important than himself. In humility, God the Son said, God the Father's glory is more important than mine. I'll take on flesh. Even though I'm equal to God the Father, I will not consider that something to be held on to and clutched. But I'm going to let go of it. And I'm going to take on the form of a servant. A servant. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He prayed in the garden before the cross. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But not my will be done. Your will be done. Your will is more important than mine. And this is God talking to God in Trinitarian relationship. He emptied himself, Paul says. He took the form of a servant, Paul says. He was born in the likeness of men. Who was? God was. God became man. God became that that sinned against God. So that God could die for the ones who sinned against God. It's astonishing. And that is the example that Paul puts before us this morning. What did Jesus say when he's dying on the cross? No selfish ambition on the cross. He didn't utter anything that was selfishly ambitious. No vain conceit came out of his mouth. What did he say? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He put our interests ahead of his own in his dying moments. And he's so concerned for us that he asks the Father to forgive us for the sins that we committed that required him to die on the cross as a human, even though he's God. He looked not only for his own interests, but the interests of God, the Father, and mankind, you and me. Now, I want to stop for a moment and circle back to what I started with. Can you imagine now, having considered all of that, if Jesus Christ, God the Son, was apathetic? We wouldn't have this passage of Scripture. If he was selfishly ambitious, this would not have even been written. Can you imagine if Jesus Christ was a divisive member of the Trinity and said, I don't think so, God. My interests are first. I'm at your right hand. I've got the name that's above all names already. I don't need to stoop down and go down to earth and do all that. No, no thanks. Ask the Holy Spirit. None of this happened. Jesus Christ said, how about me? God the Son said, send me. God the Father said, it will be good. Let's do this. And in submission, God the Son took on flesh to die for flesh. We, as I said, will spend more time in that passage next week. We'll go through 11. But I want you to know this morning that Paul has urgently called us to be united as a church family. He's shown us what it looks like in the positive and the negative. And he's given us the greatest example he could ever give us. 
There is no arguing with what Paul has communicated this morning. There's no arguing with what God has inspired Paul to communicate to us as a church. I want you to consider the alternative to this passage this morning. Selfish ambition and vain conceit are sure to demoralize a church body. And I will say if they're left unchecked, they will destroy a congregation. Destroy. This is true amongst the members, and it's especially true amongst the leaders. We, we don't need to just say, y'all need to be united. Y'all need to say to six men that lead this church, y'all need to be united. And I want you to know we are. We're not apathetic, and we're not divided. And we need this warning as we live out life together and lead this church together just like the whole congregation needs it. And you need to pray for our congregation that we live in united ways like this. And you need to pray that the leadership does. For where the leadership won't go, the congregation won't go. And so this is a message for all of us. To not live in such humility would impede our ability to stand firm for the gospel. Striving side by side, not fearing anything in our opponents. And those are the callings that we got from, from the Lord last week. Uh, last, I, I just want you to know the world hates humility. The world lives with selfish ambition. But when the world sees a church that is not humble and is ruled by selfish ambition, the world mocks that church. And that church is disgraceful in the eyes of the world. It's kind of unfair, isn't it? They mock humility. And then when we're not humble, they mock us for being like them. But that's the way it works. How we live conveys to the world the unity of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The way we live out our Christian life. Faith together communicates the ambition of God in Father, Son, and Spirit. And he was so ambitious that he took on flesh so that he could die for us and pave a way for us to be made right with him. And I want you to know at the end of the day, in the world's eyes, there is, because they're made in the image of God, there is some beauty to that. And when we do that and support it with our gospel words, that's how the kingdom of Christ is grown. But it is not grown through divided, disunified congregations. So, what must we do? This morning, we must do verse 5. We must have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. To have a chance to live what Paul has challenged us to live out, we have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if we live in submission to Him, through faith in Him, then we will be able to live in harmony with one another. That's our calling this morning, church. And I've prayed all week, and we had some men pray back there this morning, that these words would wash over us and protect us from going in the wrong directions and urge us all the more to go in the right directions of not being apathetic and being very, very tightly unified.
Father, these words are for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, who next week we will see has the name that is above all names. And that is because of the work that he came and did in humility. Father, we thank you for the call to kill the sin of selfish ambition in our individual hearts and in our congregational life. And I pray that as we in our own times read the Scriptures and in our together times study the Scriptures, you would lead us to be ambitious for Christ and ambitious for one another so that we may boast not in ourselves, but in you, our great God. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.